Hurricanes, floods, massive snowfalls seem to be occurring these days with some greater regularity. Such so-called all-hazard situations challenge healthcare providers to ensure the safety of their staff and their patients and to maintain some continuity of services for the most needy patients during and after such occurrences. Welcome to Talking Home Care, a podcast of the Home Care Alliance of Massachusetts. I'm your host, Pat Kelleher. And my guest today to talk all things emergency preparedness is Barbara Citarella. Welcome, Barbara. Oh, thank you, Pat. It's a pleasure to be here. A little bit about Barbara before we get into the topic at hand. Barbara Citarella is the founder of RBC Limited Healthcare and Management Consultants. She and her team have made the company a national leader in the home health and hospice industry with a specialty in disaster planning. She's internationally known for her expertise in the areas of infection control and emergency disaster preparedness. She's conducted mock drills for various federal and state agencies and health departments, including the New York State Bioterrorism Task Force, and she was part of the Department of Homeland Security's committee to rewrite the National Response Plan for Healthcare. So again, welcome, Barbara. Oh, thanks, Pat. Let's start. As it is for all healthcare organizations, emergency preparedness is now a critical part of the operation of a home health agency. And as I said at the outset of the podcast, it means many things. Of course, ensuring patient care and safety and staff security. But it also means maintaining continuity of business operations during and after a disaster. While these practices have always been part of a home health agency's federal commitment to Medicare, in 2016, the Federal Medicare Program Administrator CMS brought a new level to the preparedness operations requirements with a single rule issued for all 17 Medicare and Medicaid provider types. The rule was effective in late 2016. So let's start there, Barbara. Can you say briefly what motivated the federal government to put out this broad new rule? And before we get into the specifics, what does it mean in general for a home health care agency? Well, Pat, this was an interesting regulation that was promulgated because it was the first time in one federal document, one ruling from CMS that they addressed all 17 providers at one time. So that was the first time in the history of CMS that they had ever done that. The rationale behind it was based on previous responses to disasters when CMS was following patients through the continuum of care and as they moved from uh, their home to, to a shelter or needed to be evacuated, the general feeling was that there was a lack of coordination, we still had silos, there was not much communication, and that we really did not have a well-coordinated effort to meet the needs of the patients. And so if you, if anybody read the fed, federal document, they would know in looking at that in the summary, the CMS was very clear in the rationale behind it, is that they felt that the current emergency preparedness requirements in all of the federal documents did not really cover everything and were not comprehensive enough to address the complexities of what goes on in actual events and emergencies. And that many providers actually did not have enough of a strong standpoint in their disaster plan to meet 
the inconsistencies that were appearing. And so while we had some regs, they felt that they needed to give us a better, more comprehensive regulation. So this would help better enhance and guide our preparedness framework within our national health care system. Now, I have to say, I think, and I know most people who hate regs will probably say that she's, Barbara Citarella is now out of her mind, but there is some brilliance in this document because the brilliance in the document, and I see it occurring as I traveled across the country last year, uh, focusing on education for this regulation is that people are now talking to each other. They are looking at forming collaborative relationships. So in that aspect, it was very successful. In regard to home care in general and in hospice in general, they gave us very specific criteria to put in our plan, which we did not have before. So they were very specific in what they wanted us to do, what needed to be included, what the components were, and they were very specific in the IGs and the interpretive guidelines for us. Well, let's we'll come back to some of that cross-continuum collaboration in a minute. But as I understand it, there are sort of four core elements to what a compliant emergency plan looks like. Can you tell us what those four buckets are that they've directed home care and hospice to have um, policies and procedures around? Sure, absolutely. And those four components apply to all 17 providers. So it is having a plan that is based on a hazard vulnerability assessment. So the agencies must do a hazard vulnerability assessment first, then develop their plan based on what they feel that they are at high risk for. There are some other components in that, in that plan, such as pandemic, uh, biochemical, hazard spills, those types of things, explosions, those things that occur could occur on a daily basis because of transporting materials or accidents or things like that. Then once you've identified what your plan will be based on your hazard vulnerability assessment, the second component is policies and procedures. This will be the key area where the surveyors look. So you actually have to have something in writing to address all the aspects of your plan. They want to see the policies, the procedures, the processes. The third piece is communication, requiring the agencies to have a primary and secondary method of how they're going to communicate with their staff, with their patients, and with their local emergency responders. And so for home care and hospice, for many of us in that industry, this was the first time we actually saw the word or the phrase healthcare coalitions, which have been around for about five years. But in this particular document, the emphasis for communication was for home care and hospice providers, as well as the other 15 providers to reach out to their local emergency responders to identify who we are, what we do, and to be part of the team. And for the healthcare coalitions and your local emergency response team to include all those 17 providers, including us, which is exciting for home care and hospice to be included in the community plan development for response and preparedness. The, the first plan, the first is the plan, second policies and procedures, third communication, and the very fourth piece was the exercising. Um, originally, they were looking at 
all providers to do two full-scale exercises. They kind of amended that to you can have a – you could do two full-scales if you want, which means a comprehensive emergency drill with everybody in your community, including hospitals – having make-believe patients, or you could do one full scale and you can do a tabletop. But they would like the tabletop to be more than just your agency. They would like the tabletop to include other providers because you may be in an area where there is not a full scale exercise. So those were the four components, plan, policies, procedures, communication, exercise, and testing. And, and I think it's right. It's the first time that the full healthcare continuum um, saw home care both as a resource in an emergency, the, the workforce that we have out there, um, as well as a player in terms of assuring the safety of a hugely diverse group of patients. I mean, our patients are not in a single sector as they might be in a hospital or a nursing home. So assuring that our patients are safe and able to get care um, poses some unique challenges um, can you talk a little bit about those for home care and hospice? Which what are the unique challenges this was for this rule versus being a sector like a hospital or nursing home where all your patients are sort of visible and within your sight? Yes, and that's one of the most difficult pieces, I think, for other providers to understand exactly what we do. You know, very often they have no concept because we're not providing care in a building. For for home care and hospice, we had a unique set going right from the start for a number of reasons, and, and I'll save the patient care issue towards the end. But the first piece was when this regulation came out, The majority of home care and hospice providers don't have background or training in disaster preparedness. You know, we we function, um, we don't have a lot of resources, we're not financially well off uh, as providers, you know, we have a lot of regulation on top of us. So we, number one, we're starting at the ground level. So most agencies did not have the expertise to quickly comply and put something together right away. We also have that piece of those complex regulations that kind of are very limiting to us. In regard to our patient population, I think the other providers and the healthcare coalitions, as they began to reach out so that they were compliant and and healthcare coalitions, which are funded by the, the healthcare preparedness program, which is actually, interestingly enough, funded under the Pandemic Influenza Act, um, was somewhat surprised at a number of things for home care and hospice. They were amazed and pleasantly surprised at the number of providers we have. They found that, uh, they find us to be a rich resource, uh, especially for surge capacity. And for patients... They originally thought, oh, we just did aid care. Now they realize that we do infusion therapy. We take care of quadriplegics. We take care of special needs. We have pediatric patients that are in ventilators. So they were somewhat surprised at our capability. What came out in some of the other events that occurred during 2017, which we know, as you know, we had three major hurricanes. We had the hurricane in Texas. We had Irma. We had the hurricane in Puerto Rico. 
that in spite of this regulation now being in place, we still had some issues as far as following our patients and how to move them through the continuum of care. So I think as providers, we offer a unique resource, not only in the numbers, but we know the community and we know informal leaders and we know how to move around the community. I think a challenge for us is that we should be declared emergency responders, and we are often not. That really goes state by state. Um, I think as home care providers and hospice providers, it should be mandated in every state, registered on the health alert network so that we can be communicated to and from, have communication flowing back and forth. So we're unique, we are unique in that we're out in the community and that what mandates us, which might be an issue, of course, in response, is that since all disasters are handled at the local level, our staff that we are expecting to care for these patients are experiencing the disaster at the same time. You know, we're experiencing it. We're living That's it. Right. That's right. Yeah, I think that, you know, you mentioned that our staff in the community is struggling with um, securing their family um, and their homes oftentimes while they're also struggling to, to assure safety of their patients. You know, you mentioned that there was a, some brilliance in the document and what the federal government has laid out as the best practices here. But you also mentioned, and I think it's true, that there are those who think compliance around some of these preparedness issues is a lot of paperwork and administrative hassle. Um, Well, no one might say that publicly. I think people say that. Why do we have to do this? This takes a lot of time and effort. But you mentioned three hurricanes in the last year, and you must have seen or observed more closely than I home care emergency preparedness plans in action, either those that worked or those that didn't. Are there any quick lessons that... Um, You mentioned a few already that you can take away from those where agencies were more prepared or less prepared. Um, Are we just beginning to see how that works under this new law? I think those are excellent questions, Pat. And I think that because we haven't had a lot of surveys that have been conducted on the regulation that we will have to wait and see. I do think that there will be some changes after we start looking at the surveys and we have some of the results. I know we're looking for some of the results from the nursing homes to come in. I'm not sure where or what the timing is for for home care and hospice. But I I do believe that as time goes by, we'll, we'll get more information. I think the home care agencies and hospice agencies that are in areas that are prone to disasters to begin with, like Florida or, you know, June 1st is hurricane season. So everything has to be in place before June 1st. Um, in Florida, every single health care provider has to submit their plan to their local emergency responders. The same thing in Texas. Most, you know, a lot of those areas have been hit with hurricanes before. So I think areas that have experienced them, most of the agencies have a, a plan in place. It may not have been a plan that addressed these four specific components with the IGs, the interpretive guidelines, but they have a process in place. So I think that's good. I think the reality is there is no plan that's ever going to be 100% prepared because 
every disaster is so different. There's a nuance to everything. We learn from it. We go back to the drawing board and and we try to move forward in and, and incorporate that. You know, we call that isomorphic learning. We it's a, it's a retroactive, it's a reactive process and it helps us to move forward, but we're not always looking ahead of it. Um, I think that it's been difficult in the coordination piece for some of the healthcare coalitions and some of the local emergency responders as they were trying to move some of our home care and hospice patients through shelters. It was very unclear to those organizations as to what services those patients should be receiving or could be receiving from the agency. And so we again have to go back to the federal government issuing our, you know, the 1135 waivers, what we can do and what we can't do. Barbara, you were just mentioning that um, the importance of the uh, home health clinicians, our nurses and others being recognized as part of the emergency network or as part of the first responder network. And I think we recognized that in 2015 when Massachusetts in the Boston area had a record 106 inches of snow and our nurses needing to get to their patients when there were travel bans on were often not recognized as part of a critical network of assuring um, that people who might have been unsafe in the communities were checked on. So I'm hoping that should we have something like that in 2018 or the winter, um, next winter, that we would be more prepared and we would see the difference that these rules make in terms of truly being part of a team effort to assure safety of all citizens. Would you agree? I agree. And I think we will see improvement. I think as we spend more time learning what the other players are doing and sitting at a table with them and doing exercises with them and understanding each other's roles, you know, the whole purpose was of the regulation was also to make sure that there's no duplication and utilization of resources so we can utilize our resources effectively as well as communicating in patient quality of care. I think it will take some time for this to play out, but I'm already beginning to see it. And that's what I get excited about. So as I'm working with a lot of healthcare coalitions across the country, I am fascinated when I have all the 17 providers in the room and we're doing a tabletop and we're looking at identifying surge capacity. We're giving them a scenario and I think for the first time, the local office of emergency responders, and, we, and we, often we do these exercises at the operations center, they're, they're amazed at the ability of not only home care and hospice, but end-stage renal disease, ambulatory care services, family um, quality health care centers. They're amazed at our ability to do short-term surge capacity because we have a lot more flexibility in our scheduling and how we provide services. So I think as we learn more about each other and how to work best with each other, which will take, I would say by year three of this regulation, we're going to see a significant improvement in coordinated response and being able to move our patients through the continuum of care without disruption. And that's the 
end goal. And why don't you explain for folks who might be listening to this podcast who know in general what an emergency is and what it means to sort of be prepared, you know, use the term surge capacity. Why don't you explain what that means in the healthcare sector? Okay. For surge capacity, we are looking to see in a large-scale event how we can move patients around in a system without overburdening certain aspects or certain healthcare providers. So an example would be, and we can use the flu right now because, you know, we are really in an epidemic. Uh, You know, all 50 states have the flu in large numbers. And so instead of inundating the emergency room, or if the emergency room was inundated, or they shut down an emergency room and they couldn't be seeing patients, and then the urgent care centers were overwhelmed. Uh, You know, where are those patients going to be treated? Well, most likely they're going to be treated by us. So how many patients could we take in a day? So it's looking, how many patients can you absorb into your normal caseloads? How many additional patients can you absorb and still provide quality of care? And that would change day by day as as the event unfolds, uh, during the event, post-event. You know, for our role in home care and hospice, we really, most of our work is done pre-event and preparation and then post-event after the event has happened. We're not really responding or being a responder in an event like our emergency operations people are, our hospital personnel may be. Um, but surge capacity, I always, to, to put it into layman's terms, is how many more pounds than eight pounds can you squeeze into an eight-pound box and still provide services and still do your essential <laughs> functions? <laughs> and that's what we're looking at. I I like that. Back to the sort of the regulation itself and the whole host of compliance steps that agencies have to take so that when a uh, state or federal surveyor shows up at their doorstep and says, what have you done to comply? um, What do you think as you've gone around the country, what are the biggest stumbling blocks um, that agencies are running into in terms of putting um, something internal in place? I think for most home care and, and hospice providers, and especially for home care, because as you know, Pat, we have the, the January 13th new cops. They, they have so much on their plate that you sit and actually write a plan. And surveyors, the only thing they're going to have to look at is process and documentation. So I think for me, when I saw the interpretive guidelines, I was surprised at the amount of documentation required. But in retrospect, as I looked at it from a quality assurance process, you know, the old quality assurance process, uh, that's all they can really look at is the documentation. Many of these surveyors are as overwhelmed as we are. You know, they're, they've had to learn what these regulations are. Now they're busy learning the cops. Um, they don't necessarily have background in disaster preparedness. So I think it's a learning curve for them. So the only way that they're going to know if you're compliant is by looking to see what you've documented. So that means you have a full documentation for your plan. You have full policies and procedures. They're looking to see that your staff were oriented to it. 
So you need documentation on that. They want to see what kind of communication. They're going to look for documentation that you've communicated with your uh, Office of Emergency Responders. You have contact numbers for your local and your state emergency responders um, that you've documented your communication with them. Even if they don't call you back or they don't respond, you need to document that you have spoken to them. If you've tried to be involved in a tabletop or a full-scale exercise with them, you know you need to document that you've called and you've asked to be part of it if they've told you no. And we have had that happen across the country. We have had... Um, some coalitions say to home care, no, you, you're not going to be a player at the table. And then we've had others that have fully embraced us. So I think it's just a long learning curve, but it's strictly documentation. I think that's the hardest part is the time it takes to document everything that's required in the regulation because, again, we don't have the background. So there's so much research to do. And, you know, it's it's nice that there are tools out there for them. And, and what this means, if you're thinking about, um, you know, this emergency preparedness, if you're a patient or a family who um, is using home health services, I think one of the basic, you know, sort of, you know, when you get past all of the, the compliance and the regulations and the, and the policies, the idea is that if a disaster should occur, such as a flood, which occurred in northern New England a year or so ago, or some of the things we saw in Florida, that your home health agency knows what your needs are, how immediate those needs are, how long you can go without someone getting out to you, what types of medications you're on, if people are on um, devices that need monitoring, that your home health agency actually has a sense that should a disaster occur at any given day, we know what patients need immediate service and which patients don't and where they are. And then we have a way to get in touch with them. And, and again, you know, when you get past everything we're talking about, um, and again, our role in the bigger sector, that's really what it means for families, that they can know that if you're on service for a home health agency, you should expect that they have a plan in place should suddenly something happen that could disrupt that service. And that's sort of putting it in layman's terms for me, but that's what this all means in the end is that we can be assured that the patients we are servicing have some continuity of care in the event of a disaster. Um, and that's, I think, really important for us to be communicating to our patients. I agree because for many of us who are taking care of family members, if we were had our family in a home care agency, that would be key for us to know that no matter what happens, there's a plan in place to keep them safe, to have continuity of care, to make sure that they can retain their status of wellness, whatever that level may be for them, and not get lost in the process. Yes, I think that's absolutely critical. Now, you mentioned that, you know, the agencies are struggling, and this is a lengthy process for some agencies to get all of the um, compliance um, policies and procedures in place. I know that you have said there are tools that the federal government has on their website. There are tools that you develop. Can you talk a little bit about resources for home health agencies that they may or may not be aware of that exist right now? Absolutely. And there are lots of resources out there. And, and first, um, from the federal government, the, under the Assistant Secretary of Preparedness and Response, there is a program called ASPR Tracy, A-S-P-R, ASPR Tracy, T-R-A-C-I-E. And it is 
if you go out to Ask for Tracy, there are resources for all the 17 providers. So there is a section for home care and hospice. I serve as their subject matter expert for home care and hospice. So for those resources that are out there, when we initially put them out, I did the review of all of the documents. So they're, and they're always, we're always creating new resources. And it's also helpful for home care and hospice to see what else the local emergency responders are going to be required to to use as resources to track home care and hospice needs and how many agencies are involved in the coalitions and things like that. But, um, and Pat, as you know, your state association and RBC, we work together. We developed a manual and we have a workbook that goes with that manual that gave some sample templates, gave a sample hazard vulnerability assessment and a blank one for agencies to fill out, uh, questionnaires for them to fill out their readiness. So we've tried to give them as many tools. We did a series of um, programs that we, Pat, you and I partnered with the National Association for Home Care. We did a a webcast series on the regs. We did a six-part series. And then we also do, and for our company, we actually have agencies that have asked us to, to actually write their plan, which we did based on their hazard vulnerability assessment. And then we have something exciting coming up, and I'm going to let you talk about that, Pat. That's great. For, for those who are listening in the um, Northeast or the New England area, uh, Barbara will actually be presenting at the New England Home Care Conference and Trade Show in April in Maine. She'll be presenting two sessions on basically how agencies can conduct their own tabletop exercises. And what a tabletop exercise is, um, is essentially a test to see um, in an informal, stress-free environment um, without, a, without an actual emergency present to examine and identify problems with your operational plan. So it's almost like a, a testing of your plan and an exercise. And Barbara will be talking to home health agencies how to actually put something like that in place and do it at your agency because I think that's something agencies struggle with. We have everything written in, in place. Now, how do we actually test it? And Barbara will be talking in Maine in April um, about how to do that. And for folks who want to look at both Barbara's sessions and what is also going to be featured at the New England Home Care Conference and Trade Show, you can go on to the website nehcc.com and you'll see the full uh, agenda for that meeting. Uh, Barbara mentioned the manuals that she has put together in cooperation with our state association and the links to those are on her website, rbclimited.com. And you can find information about those manuals there, as well as about Barbara's services, as she said, if you need individual assistance. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on, Barbara, that we haven't talked about? Yes, I would just like to say that I am so proud to be the spokesperson for home care and hospice at many of the federal committees that I sit on. I don't know of any group of providers that are more dedicated to their patients. Uh, we respond no matter what the weather is and no matter what's going on in our own home during a during an event, we're out there trying to make sure that our patient's taken care of. So I am just so proud to be associated with the home care and hospice providers. And I just want to thank them from the bottom of my heart for everything they do every day. 
I, I couldn't agree with you more. And that's a great way to end this podcast. Um, we have certainly tried to do our part working with you to make sure that all of our providers and not just our Medicare providers, but private agencies who necessarily aren't covered by this rule, but to make sure that they too have a plan in place for their staff and for their patients. And I couldn't agree more with you about the sentiment that we have seen time and time again in weather disasters, natural disasters and other places, home care nurses, therapists and aides getting out to patients using incredible um, resourcefulness to find ways to get through 20 two inches or 26 or 36 inches of snow or a flood that has basically wiped out a bridge and having to go miles around to get there. We've seen it and we can't thank those uh, people enough for what they do. So thank you, Barbara Citarella from RBC Limited uh, for this conversation. And um, if home care agencies need more information, the resources will also be on the Home Care Alliance's website, thinkhomecare.org. Thank you for listening. Talking Home Care is a production of the Home Care Alliance of Massachusetts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about our association, visit us at www.thinkhomecare.org. Thank you.